Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. It's our last major food source from the wild, and while grain may get a lot of the credit, fish has played a crucial role in the growth of civilization. Like them or love them or hate them, we're talking fish today. The roots of fishing, its role in history, and the threats from overfishing. With me is Brian Fagan, emeritus professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and one of the world's leading archaeological writers. His latest book is Fishing, How the Sea Fed Civilization. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you. What are the earliest forms of fishing? How, how far back does fishing go? The earliest evidence of fishing goes back to the very earliest chapters of human evolution in East Africa. It's a minimum of a million years old, probably nearer two. Uh, the way we know this is by finds of catfish bones in very early human campsites by Lake Turkana in northern Kenya and also at Olduvai Gorge in East Africa. The evidence is very incomplete. Uh, it's entirely possible that these fish were accidental finds, but I think it's more likely that in the dry season, as lakes dried up, fish, catfish, which are bottom fish, got isolated in increasingly shallow ponds, and people who knew this could simply go into the water and pick them out of the water and eat them, which requires no technology at all. All it needs is the realization that you're going to find fish at certain times of the year, which is the classic human quality of opportunism. Grab your chances when you have them. So that's the earliest fishing. Uh, if you don't want to call it fishing, that's fine. But in fact, this is the first exploitation of any form of aquatic resource that we know about. And what did what did fishing look like in uh, hunter gatherer societies? I imagine that this is part of it. Maybe they were they were waiting for things to dry up, and they were able to catch these catfish. But in other societies. I can't, people weren't just going out with fishing poles, I imagine, and waiting for fish to come. Um, so what made fish a, a viable, reliable su- uh, food source in uh, the earlier uh, parts of humanity? The most important thing about fishing, the most important human qualities about fishing, the first one is opportunism, which you other mentioned. The other one is very careful observation of your surroundings. And if there's one thing common to every hunting, gathering, and fishing society, it has been an extremely intimate relationship with your environment and with the living creatures and plants which are part of it. And as far as fish is concerned, this really revolved around observing the times of year when fish gathered to spawn in shallow water, or when there were fish runs up and down rivers, like salmon, for example, where we think they were exploiting salmon runs in southwest France at least 20,000 years ago. 
So it was the observation of routine movements by fish and taking advantage of those. Obviously, people were on the lookout for fish otherwise, but generally they would catch them or harvest them in large numbers, probably dry them. And the actual harvesting was a matter mainly of trapping them in shallow water and then either netting or spearing or even driving them into shallow water so that you could pick them up. There wasn't any great technology involved here. It's very different from when you go offshore or into deeper water where you really have to have uh, boats and so on, which are a major factor in fishing in later times. Yeah, that seems to be a common, I guess, uh, misconception of sort of hunter-gatherer societies, that they were out there waiting for the animals to come and, and sitting out there hunting and things like that. But it sounds like... Uh, much like they did with uh, some of the, the the land animals, they would just drive into a killing field. They're doing the same thing with the fish. Oh, yeah. And the, the, one of the reasons it's very difficult for us to understand all this is that we're used to going out with a fishing pole and catching fish. We are used to going fishing as a recreation. What these people did was eat fish as part of their diet when they were accessible and abundant. And this is a very different philosophy. You know your environment, you know the annual cycle of events that happen in summer and winter. Very different. And why do you think it is that, um, or are there any theories as to why fishing has remained for sport, for, for a sorts of food, for many, many people still, um, why has that remained when hunting and gathering has disappeared? Fishing is the earliest and longest lived, or one of the earliest, one of the longest lived human ways of gathering fish, food. And the difference between hunting, foraging for plants, and fishing is very profound because when you start domesticating animals, for example, you probably do it because the animals you habitually have hunted are becoming scarce. And you realize that the survival strategy may be, for example, to trap the young and then breed them in captivity. And with plants, you may be living off wild grass seeds, for example, many of which are very palatable. And the obvious way of managing risk, of managing shortage, is to simply plant them. Everyone knows that plants grow and germinate and discard seeds. So you've got those two things going on. With fish, the whole ball game is very different mm -hmm. because fish, although they can be farmed, which happened, and this, in fact, duly became a risk management strategy, particularly in later times when the demand for fish was much higher. Fish are just there, and you hunt them, and they're much more elusive. So it's a very different dynamic. Yeah, I mean, so starting with this idea of uh, people sort of just picking the fish up out of shallower water or, or driving them into shallow water so they can get to them easily, um, how has fishing changed over time? And, you know, you mentioned farming fish. Uh, when did that sort of come into play? How have the tools changed over, over time? These are really two different questions. Fishing is 
a staggeringly conservative way of getting food. What astounded me when I started work on this project was discovering just how incredibly little fishing technology has changed over hundreds of thousands of years. You catch them with gorges and hooks and lines. You net them. You catch them in baskets. You spear them. And really, there was very little change on this <coughs> right in the recent times. And, for example, the cod fisheries of New England and Newfoundland in the 18th and 19th centuries were basically still using medieval technology. What changed of course, down the line were the ways in which boats went to sea with steam and then gasoline and diesel. So that's one of the most undercurrents is how conservative the ways of gathering fish have been. Sure, there have been technological innovations, but fundamentally, fishing as a pastime and as a way of making a living depended on opportunism, careful observation, and the use of basically very rudimentary technology, even if that technology was elaborated. For example, in the South Pacific, you've got in Polynesia an elaborate technology of traditional fish hooks, many of which were startlingly specialized and extremely effective. And there's a lovely account of a journalist from the 20th century who was himself a fisherman and a tennis player going out with people who were catching bonito in a canoe with traditional methods. And he observed how they would flick a line out with a rod, catch a fish, directly it struck, they would swing it into the canoe. And he compared it to a game of tennis where there was serving and receipt, serving and receipt. And it was due to the extremely effective method of fishing by experts, and also the very, very carefully crafted fish hooks. As far as fish farming is concerned, it's a, again, it developed as a risk management strategy, as a way of producing more food. And the earliest records of it in China and in Egypt about the same time are somewhere around 2500 BC, but it may well have occurred earlier than that. We simply don't know, largely because it's very difficult to pick this sort of thing up in archaeological sites. The, I believe that the earliest fish farming very often happened, and this certainly happened in Egypt, in situations where you needed to catch predictably large numbers of fish, catfish, mullet, and fish like that. Why? Because ancient civilizations like that of the Egyptians and indeed the Sumerians depended to a huge extent on rations. And excavations by the pyramids of Giza in Egypt have un unrevealed workshops where hundreds and thousands of fish were dried and gutted and perhaps salted to be issued as rations to the people who built the pyramids. And that has been a major factor in the development of fish farming. In China, which was predominantly an agricultural society, fish farming developed as a very effective subsidiary food. 
And again, that was uh, catfish and other fish which were water in ponds. And in China, they developed fish farming to a very, very sophisticated level. Probably the most famous ancient fish farms are those of the Romans, the Roman fish ponds in the Bay of Naples, for example, where wealthy landowners would maintain that cat, um, fish ponds in which they would raise prized large mullet and other fish which we would serve and display at banquets. And these fish changed hands for enormous sums of money. And in fact, the techniques of raising them, which is largely done by slaves, was extremely sophisticated and took advantage of such things as tides and so on. So it's basically a simple technology, but one that achieved considerable elaboration. Today, of course, it is a multi-billion dollar international industry. And going back to uh, these sort of ancient civilization, uh, civilizations, um, agriculture, grains, uh, those tend to get a lot of the credit for, for forming uh, civilization when we, when we learn to plant crops or when we learn to uh, raise livestock. But uh, it sounds like fishing played a, a pretty big part. What, as we move towards these, these civilizations based on agriculture, what, what role was uh, fishing playing? Fishing, it varies. Of course, it depends where the civilization was. If you're looking at, say, the Mesopotamian Delta, or you're looking at the Nile, or you're looking at Cambodia, or probably most famous of all, you look at southern Florida or Peru, you've got situations where fish were vital as a basic part of a diet, particularly environments where irrigation agriculture was somewhat chancy, or where, as I said earlier, you have an enormous demand for rations. One of the most fascinating, and one of the least known, actually, except in archaeological circles, are the fishermen of the Peruvian coast. These people took advantage of the enormous and still enormous anchovy fisheries which flourish off the coast of Peru. And the yields from this were enormous, staggering. And you could literally gather them up, In women could gather them up in their long skirts or you could put them in baskets or you netted them. And these fish were dried in enormous quantities Many of them were eaten as dried fish. Others were pounded up into fish meal, which was traded up into the highlands of the Andes for other products like uluku and potatoes, which came to the lowlands together with textiles. And you got a huge trade developing, which fish was a vital part. And the people who lived on the Andean coast, which is, of course, one of the driest environments on earth, depended on agriculture, which was dependent on fertile soils in valleys, river valleys, which were watered by mountain runoff. And these people developed very sophisticated irrigation for these crops. But at the same time, they had to rely on the products of the coast, 
not only for fish, but also for fertilizer. So again, it was a vital role. And you really can say that the teeny fish, the anchovy, was a very fundamental foundation of the creation of Andean civilization. Um, another group you talk about are the Jomon in uh, Japan. Who were who they? The, Japan, the Jomon of Japan are surprisingly little known outside Japan. They are an incredibly long-lived society in northern Japan and the islands further north, which depended on hunting, the gathering of plant foods, and also on fishing. And they exploited salmon runs. They were also expert shellfish foragers. And they developed such a viable way of life that it survived uh, with increasing elaboration over thousands of years immediately after the Ice Age. And it survived in one form or the other right into the time about a couple of thousand years ago when agriculture, rice agriculture, became established in the Japanese archipelago. But at the same time, the Ainu people of northern Japan are thought by many people to have been the descendants of the Jomon. And this extraordinary society is one that shares many common cultural features with other societies in the north. And one of the questions, which is very interesting and completely unsolved yet, is whether these Jomon people had any relationship at all with the first hunter-gatherer and fisher societies that crossed the Bering Strait when it was dry land before 14,000 years ago. So they are very, very important. Um, and this idea of these sort of ancient uh, practices, though the technology has changed, the practices don't sound like they've changed a lot. But um, are there any ancient practices that you th that would still work in the modern era that might be more sustainable as we, you know, sort of get into the idea of overfishing? That's a tricky one to answer because you've got a very different world now. And the silent elephant in the whole fishing room is one word, population. The demand for fishing or fish today is staggering. And it's expanding every year as urban populations rise and also as city populations in Asia particularly rise fast because fish is a very important part of Asian diet. And it's no coincidence that something like half, I believe now, of the fish eaten in Asia now are farmed. Everything from shrimp upwards. So one could argue that fish farming on a large scale will help fisheries become sustainable, although there are some serious ecological consequences to it, which is still little understood. But I think probably the most durable thing, which is still applicable, is the whole technology of smoking and drying and salting fish, which is alive and well and it contributes to the state sustainability. For example, salt cod are a major factor in the diet in Portugal and the diet in Scandinavia. So that is very important. And many of the technologies will always survive because we forget 
that we may have industrial scale tuna fishing, industrial scale cod fishing, of goodness knows what else, with large trawlers that stay at home out in the ocean for weeks. But ultimately, millions of people get their fish by hunting, by fishing alone. They are subsistence fishers. And in that sense, the longer we support subsistence fishers, the more sustainable fishing will be. And overfishing is uh, is obviously at a at a higher point than it has been in the past. But when when did overfishing begin? Has it been around as long as fishing has uh, on smaller scales, or is this a, a new phenomenon? Well, there's overfishing and there's overfishing is the way to answer that. Um, overfishing has been a concern for human societies for a very long time. For example, in the Mediterranean, overfishing was commonplace in Roman times. Uh, but the Mediterranean is not, except for the tuna migrations, not an enormous fishery. There was concern over North Atlantic overfishing as early as the 16th and 17th centuries. There was concern about overfishing in other areas and has been for a long time. The trouble is, it's very difficult to pick up in archaeological sites, except in a diminution in the size of the fish, which are caught, or in the size of shellfish. And there's no question that some shellfish populations, for example, were overfished well over a thousand years ago in Southern California, for example. So it's a phenomenon that comes and goes. This is very different from the ecological damage done by beam and bottom trawls, which developed around the Industrial Revolution, somewhat earlier, but mainly in the Industrial Revolution. And these trawls just stripped the seabed. And there were huge debates about this in Europe in the 19th century, but people said, the commissioners said, poo poo. And there'll always be fish because there's the constant biblical belief that we're masters of the ocean and that the ocean is inexhaustible, which is nonsense. And overfishing in medieval Europe was one of the things that triggered the crossing of the Atlantic for cod in Newfoundland and New England, for example. It's a phenomenon that's now so big that we are beginning to talk about a fishless ocean or fishless future, the damage done is devastating. And for those who may not know, um, what is uh, this bottom, this idea of bottom trawling? Bottom trawling is when you drag a trawl along the seabed and it gathers up anything that gets in its way into nets. And this can be mollusks, small fish, large fish, inedible fish, rocks, seaweed, you name it. It drains also, uh, this technique tends to destroy the foods upon which fish depend. So it's devastating. And since you've had uh, steam trawlers, diesel and gasoline trawlers, the damage has got even more devastating, particularly as they've made the trawls more efficient and they operate at deeper depths. Trawling under sail is much more efficient than other forms of fishing, but it's not nearly as efficient or devastating as that done when using fossil fuels. 
and other than uh, bottom trawling, what are what are some of the uh, the other more controversial fishing practices or techniques uh, throughout history? One of the big ones has been seine netting, which is where you put down a net in a shallow uh, water, and you may have two boats, and they will lift it out together. You've got very fine uh, mesh nets, which are used too. That can be very devastating. Another one, which was very popular in the 19th century and is still used, is long lining, where you put out lines on the ocean with hooks. And some of these ones today are several miles long with thousands of hooks. And obviously, you catch more fish, but you decimate the population. And the more you desolate the prime population, the breeding fish, the fewer fish you get. So there are lots of devastating techniques. This is before you get into electronic fish finders and things like that, which add a whole new dimension to the business of finding fish. Because even on the Grand Banks, uh, schooners would go out in the 18th century, 19th century, and the skippers would stop they would fish for some time. They might get nothing. They might move half a dozen times, and then they would hit a concentration of cod and anchor and stay. So there's much more judgment, experience, knowing where to go. That is still true, but electronics add a whole new dimension to this. And what did you find as you were looking at fishing around the world and throughout history? What did you find that, that surprised you the most? One thing that surprised me profoundly was how little we knew about it. To my knowledge, the book I wrote on this topic is the first global history of fishing that I've ever seen, first I've ever written. The reason probably is very simple. There are libraries of books on overfishing and the crisis in today's fisheries, ecological damage. There are shelves of volumes on the Atlantic cod trade, which has generated a remarkable and very high quality literature on the whole economic impact of cod fisheries and every aspect of it, even the trading of poor quality cod to slave plantations in the Caribbean. But if you look at the West, and particularly if you look at older times before written records, where you're depending on material from archaeological sites, it's only very recently that fish have been taken seriously as something which is highly informative. One of the reasons is that identifying fish bones is something that is a skill on its own. And until recently, there were almost no people who did it. Many people, even few fish away. They are also very small and economic, inconspicuous. And in many cases, the only way you can really recover statistically viable samples, and remember your sampling here, is to pass the soil from the archaeological site through very fine meshes, uh, sieves, but through water so that you get the soil away and you can see the teeny bones. This is now being done on a much more systematic basis. And for the first time, we're really beginning to find out a lot more about fishing than we knew before. We're not talking about spectacular fish like sturgeon in the Danube. We're talking about lagoon fish 
in the Pacific. We're talking about small fish in the Yangtze. We're talking about different fish exploited 14,000 years ago off Peru. All of these things add up and give us a much more comprehensive picture. The other thing we can do now is to establish the age and the size of fish. And this is very interesting when you're looking at overfishing, for example. Has the average size of the catch fallen over, say, 200 years? And there was a remarkable series of studies done in Iceland where they studied cod, collected or harvested in enormous numbers. And there's a moment about AD 1100 where suddenly all the fish are basically of the same size. Why? Because fish had become a commodity that was traded, and the fish that were traded were of an ideal size. So you've got things like that we can do. We couldn't do that two generations ago. So that's why the book is kind of unusual. Do you enjoy, do you enjoy fishing yourself? No, I'm not a fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, am just... It isn't in my genes, I don't think. No, I'm not. I mean, I've caught fish, obviously, but I'm not a fisherman. And actually, in some ways, that's given me a, a somewhat unbiased view of it. <laughs> because inevitably, if you fish, you will love catching salmon or eels or whatever it is. Um, and I don't have that bias, and I can look at it from the outside. What I bring to this is two things. One is lengthy experience in the non-Western world in among subsistence farmers and others. And the second, I think, is an unbiased, rather global viewpoint. All right. Well, the book is Fishing, How the Sea Fed Civilization. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Well, my pleasure. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And while you're there, please leave us a quick rating if you like what we're doing.